Hi, and welcome to the Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast. Every week, we will talk to the great, the good, and the legendary from the worlds of food, drink, marketing, and business to help give you the advice that will really help your brand boom. A huge thanks to our headline sponsors, the award-winning Engage Interactive. Engage Interactive have been helping hospitality businesses like yours prepare for a mobile and digital first world since 2007. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Today, we catch up with restaurant and hospitality royalty. Today's guest is Shamil Takra, who is the head babu and co-founder at Deshum. We all want to know how they do it, we all want to know why it's queued round the block, and we all want to know how Shamil and the team have built such a strong culture in every single one of their Deshums. Deshum really is the envy and the benchmark for great hospitality. Well, your questions, queries, and prayers will be answered over the next hour, so get tuned in, get listening, get comfortable. It's a brilliant episode. So sorry also to Rosie Posey from Brighton, as there's not good news on our hopes of a Deshume in Brighton anytime soon. Sorry. It gives me the most head babu pleasure ever to introduce my next guest. Very exciting. We've got Shamil Takrar from Deshume. Hello. Hey Mark, welcome, welcome, welcome to my screen. It's good to see you. <laughs> it's good. Well, do you know what's nice? Like you're really famous for your warmth and hospitality and generosity. There's just a warm glow coming out of the screen as well. You know, you've got, <laughs> it's just emanating. So it's it's great. Good. Well, this is our office. I can show you a bit of it there. Ah, it's quite nice. Oh, you've got the smeg. Yeah, I've got a red smeg fridge and, and there's a blackboard behind us and my little bookshelf's not very good, but there you go. <laughs> okay, so, well, what's going on? Um, so, obviously, we'll talk about the shum and, you know, stories and all that stuff, but how are you at the moment and how's the team and, and what's happening right now? How's your world? Well, it's fairly, you know, it's like being in a, in a, a, a washing machine, spin cycle. I mean, it's all over the place and as soon as you get some, as soon as you get some certainty, which we thought we had, uh, you know, with Eat Out to help out and things were improving, and and cases then increase and policy changes again. So I, I look, I, I feel like it's um, above my pay grade a bit to to opine on on government policy and health, and I, I don't have a, you know, I, I read what everyone else does and I, I read around reasonably widely, but um, I don't I don't pretend to know what's right. I look over wistfully at Sweden where they seem to be stable, you know, like it seems to work. Um, I look over wistfully at Germany, which seems to work as well. I obviously look over at America and think, what a bunch of Muppets. Um, <laughs> but, but look, I mean, in the end, um, I think it's an extraordinarily tough time for the industry. Mm. Uh, a lot of us are going to have trouble. Touchwood will will get through and we'll navigate through, but it is it is extremely difficult. And um, it, it really is like white water rafting. We, we, we used to be, I guess as a business, we used to be, we used to feel like, um, so we've got eight restaurants now uh, and we're reopening Covent Garden in, in the winter. And, and we were getting better at operating them. You know, finally, we felt like we knew something of what we were doing, maybe. And, and it felt like we were in an AIDS boat. You know those boats, sort of boat race boats, and there's eight people in them, and they're finely tuned, and, and you're trying to get squeeze out every extra little, you know, half a second of time out of your race. And we, we were really working hard at making everything better and better and better. And suddenly, 
someone announces that you're not going to be on the Thames, you're going to be floating, you're going to go down the Nile, you know, down the white water rapids. And, yeah, yeah. and the first thing is you have to change a boat because the boat smashes up. And, and so I think now we're really moving, like it, it's, it's a very different set of circumstances where everything changes all the time. Suddenly we can't trade after 10 p.m., which has just been announced a couple of days ago. Um, then, you know, the Chancellor announces another support scheme and we're trying to figure out how we get, how we get the business stabilized. Do we open our restaurant in November that we were thinking of opening? It's the reopening of Covent Garden. Or is that a fool's errand? Is that a stupid thing to do? So I think it's, um, you know, re really tough times. But I mean, that said, it's, it's activating other muscles. So we've definitely become more entrepreneurial. We've definitely become, uh, you know, I, I, I don't take for granted now the stability that we had. You know, like I, I used to think it was unstable. I thought Brexit was a mess, which of course it is. But uh, Brexit now is, is just another uh, rock on the rapids that we're navigating around. It's yeah. like add it to the list somewhere. And it's not even the biggest of our problems. Um, whereas before we thought it was catastrophic, whereas now I'm just like, well, it's just another catastrophe. Um, so look, I, I think it's very, very tough. I used to have an analogy. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm mixing all my analogies and metaphors, but so someone once said to me that um, the restaurant industry is like the movie Saving Private Ryan, like the first 10 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, where we all turn up on the beach, 10 minutes later, everyone's dead apart from four of us. You know, we're all standing there. <laughs> and, and, that's, and, and now I feel like we've made it to the second half of the movie. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, there's a Luftwaffe unit overhead and they're strafing as well. And, you know, it's really like that. It's tough, yeah, tough yeah. industry to navigate it. And it, it really is. And Brexit's just another flipping plane in the Luftwaffe unit. You know, we'll take care of it. But look, we'll navigate through. It's yeah. hard. But... Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird world where you're wishing for breakfast to be the main headline again. You know, okay, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem such a big deal, um, you know, compared to compared to everything that's happened. But it's such a it's such a shame. It's such an important industry. We were doing a fantastic job. London was the centre of the world as far as food was concerned. Yeah. And you know, maybe it will be because everyone's taken a pummeling. But uh, you know, hats off to our industry, and I think people are navigating it well. But incredibly adverse conditions for for everybody in it. Um, well, I think out of all the industries as well. I mean, although you know there are things to complain about, I think it has been very well supported and I think that's mainly due to the thanks of the leadership thought leaders you know guardians of the industry so you've got you know Kate Nichols JD um, you know Simon at BII you know Martin at ARC stood up um, Peter Bogner was on question time last night which I couldn't believe I was just like wow <laughs> um, so you know and he did a great job so I, you know I think well they're rather advocating for us it's very good and, and you know if we were in arts or live music or you know and obviously some of us are nighttime economy you know at least you know a lot of the people I deal with are, are allowed to trade you know which, which is positive yeah. and what sort of happened with COVID then because I remember I was doing some podcasts um, in March and I think I was doing swingers and they were saying basically all corporate bookings are gone. So they were like further yeah. up the river, if we keep your analogy going. Um, so, you know, they, 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 were, they were getting hit first, you know. Um, and then, you know, it all started to kind of unravel. So, I mean, what, what did you see, you know, around about that 20th of March time? Well, we closed down pretty, like when it, when it was announced. I think we, we, um, I think we closed down just before we were made to close down, maybe three or four days ahead. We briefly launched a delivery business, mm. which, which lasted for about four or five days, maybe a week. Um, so we pivoted quickly, you know, got all our Deliveroo in order. We used Deliveroo uh, and, um, you know, made, made that work quickly. And then we shut that down as well because we didn't think it was safe at that point in the kitchens. Um, so so we, we moved pretty fast. And then I think we were out of action for, I can't even remember. And we only reopened the restaurants in July. So 
Um, and the whole thing is a blur, isn't it? So maybe April, May, June, we were closed. I mean, it was a long time. We were all just in our houses wondering what to do. How did you then keep the teams engaged and, and you know, the, the customers engaged as well? Because obviously you don't want them to forget, forget you, fall out of love with yeah. you. Yeah, you know, I mean, all that stuff. yeah, we were absent for three months in people's lives. So how do we engage? We, um, we, we um, eventually we opened delivery again, which has, been a, which has been a success for us. We've been really happy with it. And that's been something I hate. You know, I traditionally think delivery was the invention of the devil. But now I think it's okay. I've done a, we've done a deal with it. Well, there's almost an anagram in there, isn't there? I'm sure yeah. devil. Yeah. <laughs> I don't say that anymore. I'm, I'm now Dr. Forst or Faust or whatever. Um, but uh, so, so we, we, we eventually we opened delivery. We did some home products. But I think if I start from the beginning, like the first thing we did was just over communicate with our people, with our team. Um, and we, we did put out the odd email to, to, to customers. I think we were quite quiet with customers to begin with. And then we felt like we should do something. And, Eventually we did, but um, just over communication with, with team and honesty as well. Yeah. And the feedback I've had is that people are really glad that we fessed up to not knowing the answer. Yeah. So I used to do weekly, well, I did a lot of Zoom as well. We did something called Chai Pet Chacha, which is, um, you know, a chat with Chai. And we did that with the whole team. We have a thousand people now, a bit less, about 900. And um, we used to have five, 600 people turn up to that on Zoom. And it was, it was really good. And we just just was very honest. I did quite a lot of videos as well. So everyone got used to seeing my study background. Uh, <laughs> I have a little study and um, uh, used to just be very honest with people and say, look, this is how we're trying to navigate this. Uh, you know, our world has fallen to pieces, but look, we'll figure out what to do with it. And uh, we'll, we'll understand how to, how to navigate this rapid, but it is a rapid. It's very different now. And this is what will get us through. So I think it was really, really over communicating was, was the big deal and communicating really honestly without saying that we knew the answers. And then I think, we also then decided uh, quite proactively to, to really help people and engage them. So we put in place mental health programs. So we knew that that would be an issue. I started doing a, a weekly yoga class with people from, from yeah. my house, yeah, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, it was just sort of 20, 20 minutes or half an hour. Of, I, I, I do Ashtanga yoga myself. So we just did the opening sequences. Um, we did you know, virtual runs. So people were running together yeah. uh, and, and a host of other activities. We did drinks, we did DJ sessions and, uh, yeah, some of it stuck, some of it didn't, um, but it was pretty cool. And, and I think m most of all of that stuff that I've described did, did stick and did very well. And I think that people really appreciated that, um, I mean, not, not just the individual things, because they were helpful, but I think just the sense in which we, we all were in it and we cared and we wanted to know and we wanted to keep people okay and happy. And, yeah. and uh, I think that, that was really important. That it had a sense of community about it. Uh, and, then, and then eventually we, we managed to figure out that we should do delivery. We opened the restaurants to do delivery. Uh, we did a bacon on roll kit for home. So we started talking to customers again um, and we came back into their lives and then we opened the restaurants. But it was, you know, to definitely internally over communicate and be really, really honest. Uh, and, and, you know, eventually it was, it was good. You know, it worked well. We managed to open up. And then with, 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 with customers, I, I think you've got to find ways of engaging with customers that weren't your normal things. You've got to find entrepreneurial energy and, and do different things. Because I saw um, there was something brilliant, I mean, lots of brilliant things, but there was one thing that really stood out for me, and it was on LinkedIn, and you did a sort of well-being paper. Who was that, sorry? It was, so on LinkedIn, there right. was a, like a well-being paper from you, something like, like and I remember it, you know, being very disheartened in terms of its colorways, and, and yeah. the clever thing was you did it on the carousel. 
Yeah, yeah. Flick through, and I just, I just remember that being really standard. Yeah, we do, we do quite a lot of thinking about well-being. Yeah, we have yeah. a deep philosophy on well-being. Yeah, it was great, and I think it gave so many other people inspiration. You know, and I shared it with lots of people as well. And because it was businesses like yourself, like Hawksmoor, like Brewdog, that were, you know, setting the standard for what new looked like. You just didn't know. You were, you were in frontier territory. You were trying stuff and just putting stuff out there and putting it out with kindness and that came back, you know, but I'll need to try and dig that paper out and I'll put it in the, the show notes um, when it comes out, but it was something that really stood out, like yourselves and honest workers you. are, are great at doing that, you know? Thank you. Really I, mean, I, I guess it's, I'm just, this is me thinking on my feet and thinking live, but as, as you're saying that to me, look, society has evolved in the last 50 years, hasn't it, where communities are more fragmented and a lot of our workforce has not been here for very long. Yeah. You know, they're, they're maybe from Eastern Europe or from Spain or from Italy. We've got a lot of you know, people from Southern Europe. And they're not part of a traditional community here. You know, they have their own friends and their own um, you know, people they're with. But, you know, 50 years ago, your community was in your village or your town and you didn't move that much and you stayed in the same job. There were very sort of established structures of society. And, and as, as those have gone away, you know, some people are cynical about companies trying to do this stuff. Well, it's just they're trying to make a buck through well-being or whatever. I mean, look, you could see it that way. And I'm sure some companies you know, do it for the wrong reasons. But on the other hand, as, as those traditional structures have disappeared, we, we, we sort of have to step in and provide structures for people. So people are fundamentally sociable and they want community, right? And we're seeing that. That, that, that sort of idea that you need community is driving a lot of the difficult things in our world as well today, where a lot of communities are feeling under siege and they're doing things like voting for Trump, which I wouldn't approve of, obviously. But, but um, and I, I think that for us, to, to create, to forge that sense of people here who are sometimes dislocated, they're not near their homes, they're not near their parents, yeah. but to provide them with that sense of well-being, community, to look after people. Um, you know, and ultimately, of course, th this is a business and, and you know, I, I can't sort of deny that reality, but I think that to, 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 for us to work hard to make sure that, um, that one of the key things that we do, one of our key goals is to look after our people is, is surely not just good business, but it's the right thing to do as well. And I think it, can supplement or replace some of those older community structures that might have existed 50 years ago. And particularly in a time like COVID, people really need that. I mean, you know, we, I've seen in our business serious mental health issues because people are stuck at home, they don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, I've, I've not found it that easy either, but I've, I've just noticed people really struggling with it. And we've really worked hard to put into place big support for people. Um, and I, I think businesses should do that. I think you're right. And, you know, on the sort of flip side with, you know, someone like me who works themselves anyway, you know, it's even been lonely for me when, you know, I, I don't really go have an office or see people or, you know, things yeah. like that. But, you know, I've, I think I'm pretty much in denial <laughs> and, and I'm just like trying to make myself as busy as I possibly can with anything, you know, apart from DIY, you know, just to try and, you know, give yourself, you know, a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to do something, yeah. you know, and, and things like that. You know, it's, it's really, it is really, yeah, it's, it's, it is a weird old time. And, um, you know, as suppliers to the industry as well, there's a whole community of us who are, yeah, yeah. you know, skin on the back of you guys being skin, you know? So um, it's, uh, it's a, real, a real tricky one. Hey, I'm Andrew, the lead designer on Toggle, a platform for managing your whole gift card side of the business. Built from the ground up, Toggle is born from listening to the people who need it. It's really simple to use, but able to handle all of the things that we know are important. Integrated with the tills, mega robust reporting, smart promotions, limiting dates of redemptions and selling experiences. A bit of a marketer's dream, as well as handling fulfillment and basic gift cards with style. 
Find out more and create an account at usetoggle.com. And, you know, we met a, a little while ago. I think we had a wee squirrel away at Peach or um, Casual Dining Show. Yeah, we, we like met, yeah. And uh, we were having a chat about, you know, sort of future things, you know, we're talking about the planet, we're talking about the people, we're talking about food and, and all these things. Obviously, you know, some cool things have happened. David Attenborough just went on to Instagram, um, you know, 1.1 million followers in a day. Um, quite arrogantly not following anyone. I thought he would have followed someone. I'm sure there's a Mother Earth account or something yeah. like that he could have done. Um, or Greta, at least he could have followed Greta. Um, but <laughs> I mean, just in terms of that, you know, where's... Where's your thinking on things like, you know, sustainability and all that? Because a lot of that has went to the wall a bit because of the virus, because we're having to be a disposable culture now for... for yeah, the it's, it's tough, isn't it? Because it has, it has become a second priority. Maybe, I don't know, I, I can't say rightly or wrongly, but, but um, you know, plastic gloves or all the hygiene we're doing, you know, little bottles of hand sanitizer have, have come into place. I think, I think um, you know, initially, I guess people were saying that COVID had reduced pollution, and it had obviously, but I wonder if it comes back with a vengeance, you know, when, when we get out and we can travel again and EasyJet suddenly has a full roster of flights. But um, I, I read a book before lockdown, um, which uh, is called The Uninhabitable Earth by uh, a guy called Wallace Wells. He's a, I think he's a journalist from, he's from New York. Um, I think he writes the New York Times, but he's, it's really good. And it did, I have to say that world, that book and the perspective of that really did change my view of the ecological crisis. I always knew it was an issue, like all of us do, but uh, the, the, the urgency really hit home. And I, I guess before lockdown, we, we've been approaching this and we started thinking about um, how we make our business completely sustainable, in fact, maybe positively beneficial to the planet. Yeah. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. And, and there's a few different strands. You know, one strand is your ecological impact. Uh, another strand is animal welfare, which I think is, is different. You know, sometimes we conflate the two, but it is, it is, it is important and it is, it is a different strand. Um, and, and then there's sort of ethical sourcing. But I mean, those two strands, welfare and sustainability, and they, they are different. I think are really, really important. I've, I read a book called Sapiens, which you might know, um, yes. by Yuval Noah Harari, and essential reading, you know, everyone should read it. But it, there was only a brief uh, page or two in there about uh, chicken farming, mm-hmm. and how horrific it was that we were exploiting a species. Now, <laughs> we sell a lot of chicken. And it did strike me that, you know, for the first time, I thought, okay, veganism does make sense. Eggs are terrible, milk is terrible. But yeah. I, I think... We, we sort of have to take some of that on board and, and think about what we're doing as a species to other species and to the planet. Yeah. And at this point, we've started doing things. We're, we're um, you know, on our, our menu, our, our fish is, is almost all sustainable. We now uh, are working, I think all our meat is, is free range except for chicken, which is welfare standard chicken. We're working on that as well. We're working on how to make our restaurants uh, sustainable energy. Um, so all of that is, is, was going into place and as is going into place, it will still take us some time to do. And it's not an easy goal uh, when we want to keep our prices reasonably keen. But lockdown put that back. So, you know, we're having to dust off those plans and, and start that again. But I, I think it's, it's going to be a big issue. And I'm looking at the wildfires in California. I'm looking yeah. at the accelerating melting of the glaciers. This is, this is going to be a, a big issue. I think that, you know, our generation, we're Generation X, right? We, we've got to step up to the plate and do something. There's about 10 or 15 years of window. Yeah. Um, and it's not for the millennials particularly. I mean, some of them are now in positions of, of real responsibility and power. It certainly isn't Gen Z. The baby boom is uh, sort of now going going off, and, and I think it's our chance as, as Gen X. We, yeah. some, we seem to be not in any of the... Um, you know, no one writes about Gen X, do they? It's, it's just... Uh, <laughs> you, know, you, me, Ethan Hawke, and Winona Ryder. It's sort of us. Um, and and uh, 
no one writes about us, but I think this is our responsibility as a generation to, to pick it up and do something. Well, I think it's great that you're not just thinking about it, you know, you're, you're wanting to act on it and you are acting on it. And, you know, as a marketer, it made my heart sink every time I was writing copy about animal welfare or about animals and ingredients. And then I had to write where possible and these types of phrases. And you just thought, no, you know, like, just do the right thing, can you, you know? Um, but it's so hard, isn't it? Because we, we, we all run businesses and fundamentally, the organic thing was interesting, isn't it? Because organic started as a big movement mm. and, and then people like it declined because people didn't want to pay for it. So ultimately the That's consumers right. want to pay for it. And even when we all want to defend our high streets, but everyone goes to Tesco. Yeah. We, all, we all love our local bookshops, but everyone goes to Amazon. And as a business, you, you've got to sort of, you've got both because at the same time, you want to do the right thing, you want to lead and you should. And there's a way to communicate, there's a way to carve out a positioning. But you've got to bring your customers along with you, yeah. and, and you, you can't have you can't have everything. Like if you're going to do better things, you might have to price things up yeah. um, to just to make it work. So I, I I think you know for business leaders, this is a, a thing that we have responsibility. We have to navigate it, but it's not straightforward. No, I remember in one of the businesses I was in, we did a huge research project on organic, and you're exactly right. It, all the stuff came through. Of course, I would use organic if I could, but I'm not paying any more for it. No, no, no. It was like, oh, okay. So, you know, and with the margins that we all work on and these types of things, it's really, especially in the, the lower end, you know, in the, the yeah. SR side. I mean, what can you do? So, well, I was going to take you back a wee bit. I mean, not, not to school or anything like that. School days and, you know, trauma, trauma and you know, lie down and tell me everything. But, you know, just go back a bit in terms of the inception of the shim and how it all came to be. Um, obviously, I, I know you through my old uncle, um, Robert Bean, uh, yes. and, and you know know the story a, a bit from there, but it would just be really good to, to understand, I'm sure you've told that a million times, but just for people that don't know it and haven't heard it from the horse's mouth, it'd be really good to just hear a bit about how it all happened. No, pleasure. Um, I guess that there was, the, the, the I can't call it an insight, but there was an intuition or just a recognition that Indian food wasn't really... Um, complete as an offer here in, in the UK. And I feel like, you know, Indian food is so important to us as a nation because we've got this long and old relationship with India, which goes all the way back to 16-something when, you know, the first uh, East India company turned up on the shores of India somewhere and started trading and says, hey, we're here now, we're going to make life better, which is interesting, different story. But, <laughs> is that um, another podcast? <laughs> yeah, well, it is. I've, I've, I've read recently William Dalrymple's book on the British East India Company and astonishing rapaciousness of that, of just... It was a company with a charter that was run out of just down here in the city of London, you know, Lloyd's, like around, around where Lloyd's building is now. It was just a bunch of accountants who, who gave a company a, a, a charter and the government had said, yeah, you can do this, to go and make money how they wanted in this new continent. They could make treaties, they could make war, they could depose kings, they, could, they used to kill people, they, they caused massive famine. And the, the sort of rapaciousness of what happened and how they just milked the country was incredible. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the East India Company, just astonishing. And people like Clive, who were you know, once seen as big heroes, who, who was a you know, pretty pretty sort of dubious character. But anyway, that, that's a whole other story, and we can debate the rights and wrongs of colonialism and ripping down statues or not. But So I think in, India has such a long relationship with Great Britain and, and you know, the empire and, and all of that. It's, it's our tradition. It's our history. And, and I feel like, so we have the curry houses, but we had, so Indian food was curry houses or it was Benares at the top end, you know, where, where you can get really great lamb chops, delicious, but they they sort of set you back quite a few quid, yeah. you know, and 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 I felt like there was something in the middle there that needed to be said, 
which was very, very high quality, which was different to a curry house and, and sort of built on that relationship. And I think like many relationships, old relationships, things can get complacent. And I feel like when we thought about India, we thought of it in a series of cliches. And those cliches might be Days of the Raj, uh, Bollywood, cricket, curry house, you know, and Maharajas and palaces. Maybe that's the same as Days of the Raj. But it was all passage to India, handful of dust or Bollywood cricket curry house. Yeah. And 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 that's all it was. Like there was no sixth thing. Like you know, when someone appears from India and does something different, you know, tech came along once eventually, but there was no other thing. And when for me, I felt like the food was is just not curry. Like you go to India, and of course, it's part of what we do. I don't think curry is even an Indian word. Maybe it comes from curry, which means a bowl. But there's so much other food, and particularly in Bombay, people don't eat curry that much. Uh, you know, on an everyday basis, you know, you'll have a saucy dish sometimes. And, and even the architecture, the way we think about it, in Bombay, it's, it's all Gothic and Art Deco and Brutalist. And that was cool. It was interesting and modern and, and different. And um, I felt like we wanted to reinvent this relationship a bit, you know, through the medium of food. And, and you know, how would we do that? So I, we came across this very rich and deep seam of heritage, the Irani cafes. And as it happened, I didn't know this, but my first birthday was in an Irani cafe. And I was, as it happened, this is another story, my family had been thrown out of Africa and I was without a passport. I was a refugee and we celebrated my birthday in one of these little cafes, which, which sort of literally did give us refuge and, and probably gave us a coffee to celebrate a little ice cream. But um, so we, we rediscovered this scene of heritage, the Irani cafes. And the Irani cafes are interesting because they were the first places in, in India where the common man, you and I, could go and have a bite to eat. And my grandfather, who was born in 1918 and actually left India in 1936, but if he was around in Bombay, he would have been too poor to go to the Willingdon Club. He would have been too brown to go to the Gymkhana Club because yeah. that was no, no, no brown people. It was just posh white people. Um, and, and there was nowhere you could really go. You could go to a religious place. But Irani cafes, because they were set up by immigrants from Iran, they had to let outsiders in by definition. So at a table, you might see a, a, a hooker, a prostitute. You might see a, a taxi waller. You might see a barrister or a judge, you might see a film star or an artist. M.F. Hussein, the famous artist, was always in Irani cafes. And we know this because when you go and see Irani cafes, they proudly show you the sketches he did to pay for his food. So he was obviously a hard of artist. But these places were fantastic places, a bit like coffee houses might have been in 18th century London or 19th century London. And they spread across the city. There were 400 of them and they were melting pots and you know, like everyone used to chat there. They were for everyone. Uh, now they've disappeared. There's only 20 left. But um, and visually, they were beautiful. They were, and, and, and you know, these 20 are still there, but um, they tried to, uh, because it was a colonial time, I guess they tried to somehow refer to the cafe tradition in Europe. So you would see beautiful bentwood chairs, which were from Czechoslovakia, you know, the tonic chairs. Yeah. Um, and you, you would see marble tables and checkerboard tiles on the floor and wooden paneling and a bit like, this is a bit like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, sepia toned pictures. Uh, and, and so they were really, really cool places. So we thought this is a very helpful way to think about India and Indian food. Yeah. Um, and, and not only are we inspired by the visuals and, and of course the food of Iranian cafes and the food of Bombay, but the ethos of them where they were really breaking down barriers by bringing people together is, is something that we really, really cared about too. And I'm really proud that still in Dishim today, I think it's not, there aren't that many places where you might genuinely see a, a billionaire next table to a student 
Yeah. And the students are around because our porridge is, is inexpensive and we top it up like it's bottomless porridge and nobody ever eats more than a couple of bowls, but yeah, you can have five right. bowls if you can manage it. Even yeah. our chai will be topped up infinitely all day and you can sit there, use the Wi-Fi, drink chai for a couple of quid, two, two three quid. And, and next to them will be, uh, you know, I don't know, Lakshmi Mithal or someone on the next table with his family, you know, really happy and ordering the vintage champagne, which is nice too. That's really, really important. Yeah. And I think that that thread comes for us from these Iranic cafes, which were melting pots. Even even our, the, the tradition of our dishes on the table, you will see very Muslim dishes, you know, like boti kebab or a lamb ran, next to very Hindu tradition dishes like a bell or a baumbaji, next to Parsi dishes, uh, which which I think is really really important. And in, in Indian restaurants in the past, you would never have seen a bell next to a lamb ran. It doesn't it doesn't yeah. make sense. Um, whereas we made it make sense on our table. Um, so all of this idea of breaking down barriers is, is super, super important to us. And so, so I'm, I'm sort of, maybe this is a bit of retrospect, and all entrepreneurs don't know what the hell they're doing when they're doing it. We, we're good at interpreting the past and saying, oh yeah, it was very coherent. Um, but th this is now me looking back and saying, and I, I think that's what we did. We found that seam of heritage, saw the, the way that we needed to reinvent this sort of idea of the relationship, and, and then thus Dishum was sort of born as, as a sort of concept. Hi, I'm Alex from Engage, and thanks for tuning in to the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Each week, we'll be bringing you a great tip to supercharge your own digital marketing. And this week's comes from Kate, our Senior Marketing Manager, who shares her insights in how to find your email subscribers on social media. If you have an email marketing database, don't miss out on the opportunity to also touch base with these customers on social. You can upload your email list to Facebook as a custom audience, which Facebook will then match with their user data to create an audience you can target with ads. And that's not all. You can also create lookalike audiences based on your email list to reach new people who share demographics or interests with your existing subscribers. This is a great way to build larger, relevant audiences, even if your actual email database is quite small. And if you have several email lists, for example, product updates, inspiration, and offers, you can target each list with tailored content that's relevant to the stage they're at in the buying journey. As email subscribers tend to be among the most engaged customers, brands tend to see cheaper costs and higher conversion rates with these audiences. If you need help with your own digital marketing strategy, then head over to engageinteractive.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can see how we've helped some of the UK's most ambitious and successful hospitality brands with theirs. Cheers and enjoy the rest of the episode. And when did you feel you got it right you know, was it a few restaurants in or did it click at Covent Garden early or what happened? No, no, uh, two, three years in, second restaurant. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that so confidently is that I think our first restaurant was fine, Covent Garden. It was good and it, it did well. We got a stinker re review from Jay Rayner. Did uh, you? Yeah, terrible. I served him myself. He was very upset that he had to wait 10 minutes, uh, which doesn't seem like a lot now, now that we have yeah. you know, no reservations restaurants. And I served him chai myself. And he sat next to a picture of my grandmother, you know, my grandmother looking beautiful at the age of 16. And it's not just my grandmother, it's the arranged marriage photo that meant my grandfather uh, said, wow, she looks beautiful and married her. So like, you know, it's the reason I exist is because of that photograph. And he wrote in the review that th these photos could have been bought by the yard, you know, somewhere. Oh. Anyway, later on, the, the, the good ending to that is he recanted that review and said, the one thing that I got wrong in my life as a reviewer is to show him which was amazing. Oh. And I've, I've sort of seen him since, and he's, I now think he's a lovely fellow. I mean, he's a pretty good critic. But anyway, so yeah. that, that restaurant, we did get a single review, but I think it was, um, 
I mean, certainly we didn't know what we were doing as restaurateurs, uh, as, as a team. And I think it took us a while to really get comfortable in our skin and relax a bit. And I think that even the idea of, um, I mean, if, if you go to our second restaurant, which is Shoreditch, I think that's a much more mature expression of who we are. And I still go there. And for me, that's our first restaurant. The other one is almost like a pilot. Yeah. And, and the Shoreditch restaurant is, is really lived in. Um, you know, like the dirty old ceilings are still dirty old ceilings. We've wedged an Irani cafe into this sort of dirty old space in Shoreditch. Um, if I was cynical, it looks a bit like Shoreditch in 2012, but I think it works beautifully as a, a sort of Irani cafe that's there. And, and we've really managed to evoke all the different architecture from the different cafes. Yeah. And I think also philosophically, we discovered that if you chase the profit too hard, you will not make money. Yeah. And that was a major realization from Covent Garden where... I remember in the early days, the sales were fairly stagnant um, at, at one point. We just couldn't get them up. And we did all sorts of things. And I'm an ex-consultant, so we did some slides. We thought that might help and you know, plan. And, and eventually, um, what actually happened was that we really realized that instead of focusing on the profit, which meant that the managers would renegotiate the price of lamb chops every, you know, every 10 minutes or send the team home in the afternoon when it wasn't busy. You know, these seem like sensible things, but that's not the thing to focus on. The thing to focus on is making it brilliant. And the secret to restaurants, my, my humble view, is this is going to sound very trite, awesome food and drink, awesome service, a happy team, control your costs, and the revenue and the profit are the applause that follow. Yeah. Once we learned that, the top line just increased. It was really weird. Like, we got the team to focus on quality, almost to the exclusion of other things. You know, we had to control the costs, and top line increased, and customers wanted to come in, and the best way to great costs is big revenues. And, and I think those two things, us living in ourselves and understanding what Irani Cafe and, and the restaurant in Shoreditch, plus this insight, meant that I think we figured out who we were back in about 2013, I want to say, 2012, 2013. So it was three years in. It's a real delight going to Shoreditch. You know, I had a few meetings with Sarah over the years and like just sitting out in the back courtyard and having a chai. And, you know, and I think I was so chuffed. Uh, I got a couple of wee cards from her, I think, which was, you know, have a free chai next time or yeah, uh, yeah. we do a lot of that yeah. I, I was just blown away I'd never I, I just hadn't seen generosity like it you know people have meetings and then they say cheers see you later you know and that's usually it so you know it felt it felt great so that was my my sort of wee hangout for a while if I was over that way um you know we're, we're, we're forever giving people things I'm just and we're trying to do it more and at the moment as well we're trying to do that as well at the restaurants where we just yeah. we call it seva which is selfless service we just try and give people stuff and you know, the costs are not that big. Like, I think it's just much better to be generous because it comes back. And, and of course, you've got to be sensible. You can't give everything away so your food costs are stupid. But uh, I think it just really works. Yeah. Well, I remember a, a restaurant, so, uh, I guess, business person, you know, saying people don't get addicted to free. They get addicted to discount. Yes. You know, so I thought that was, you know, if you do it sporadically, um, but if you're, if you're always on sale... You know, you're not valuing yourself. You're not valuing yeah. the team. You're actually showing a lack of respect. Um, and no, a lot I, of ways, we don't discount. Yeah, it's a terrible. Um, thing. And just while we're on that point, what about you know, to help out? Um, how did that go for you guys? You know, what, what did you do? Uh, it was good. Yeah, we were super busy, um, and it was really lovely to see customers back in. And and we we worked hard on making everything you know very COVID safe. Yeah. Um, and and it was quite nice to have people come back in and experience it as safe. And the feedback we got was that. I think we were very keen, um, and it was about two weeks, you'd have to help outside, about two weeks after we relaunched the restaurants in July, to not only 
um, make sure we were in the sort of spirit of all the regulations, and even the, obviously the letter of the regulations as far as Corona was concerned, but also it feels like hospitality. Yeah. We want it to feel like a hospital. So, so <laughs> there's something funny in there, isn't it? It feels like hospitality rather than a hospital. But um, so, so when you come in, we really wanted you to be greeted with warmth. And we invested in, maybe over-invested in, making sure that there were screens that separated people off. We made them feel like part of the restaurant. They were very well done, by the way. They looked oh, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Not, not many people went to those lengths. You know, they, they sort of got something that looked temporary. And that's fine, because I understand it won't be there forever. But I think, you know, yourselves did a great job. I saw a couple of other um, good examples on Instagram. And then I think Oakman Inns sort of went to town. Um, yeah. they, uh, you know, I, I think, they look good. do you know what, it, it reminded me of the old recording studios, you know, where you've got that yeah, room, yeah, yeah. Um, which was quite that fun. Glass, um, wooden glass screen, yeah. <laughs> but then I remember hearing Alex from Loungers saying uh, Perspex was more expensive than Saffron. You know, it was getting it was getting ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, but yeah, yeah no, I think you've done a great job. That's really. a good business, Loungers. L- love that business. Uh, he's very smart, very smart. Unbelievable. Um, no, so, so I think it was, it's nice to put those, but we might keep some of those because they look really cool. But um, we wanted you to come in and just experience hospitality. And, and yet we wanted to remind you that we were looking after you. So we, we invented a little logo, which is just a little round, like a kite mark, which says DCS, Dishim Corona Safety. And so we put that on the screens and we put that on different places. And we just somehow, if you, if you were looking for reassurance, we wanted you to find it. Yeah. But we didn't want to shove it in your face. And, and I think we found that balance right. I'd like to think we got that right. So Eat Out to Help Out was a great chance to test that. We had fantastic feedback from guests. They really felt safe in the environment. Um, and and I, I, think it, I think it was good. So, but I mean, it got very busy and now that busyness has come off. We're in September again and it's, it's uh, you know, the messaging from the government now is don't eat out because that won't help out. Yeah. Uh, so people are back in and we're, we're just figuring out how much business there is out there and how much volume is out there. And I think we're, I mean, I think one thing is that there will be an end. It will pass. You know, one day there will be a, vaccine or we'll just get fed up or we'll get good at track and trace or something but but you know like in six months time it will i think look different there will be something so we have to get to that other side and then rebuild rebuild the industry and then what obviously you're opening a new restaurant yeah as well um as if that's not hard enough generally so how, how did that all go for you i mean great great idea you know just in terms of another sort of tick on the map you know, oh, do you mean Birmingham or do you mean yeah. Covent Garden? Yeah, Birmingham. Oh, I think about Birmingham first and then, yeah, Covent Gardens, Renaissance yeah. as well. I mean, we just, we do this stupid thing. Like, uh, we've got a handicap, city centre restaurants that have high rents and high fixed costs that are, have big teams dependent on big volume. You know, like, would you want that in this pandemic? You really wouldn't. But look, that's what we've got. We're stuck with it. But we launched Birmingham and I think it's a beautiful restaurant. It's one of the best we've done. It's a gorgeous space. Um, the backdrop is all the scenery in in, uh, in, in, in Paradise Chamberlain Square. And uh, the, the, the town, like people have been really, really supportive. They've come in, they've tried us out. Birmingham has a fantastic tradition of Indian food. Yeah. So we're going in with humility and trying to say, hey, we're here and we're trying to contribute and please come and try our food. Uh, I certainly don't uh, pretend that we're the same or, or better than or anything. Like there's a huge amount of really good curry houses locally. But but people have come in and tried it. And some people haven't, haven't liked it as much. I think, the, you know, like... Other than that, people have loved it. They, they've really supported it. It's been busy, and I love the restaurant. So go, go and try it. Have you been up there yet? I haven't been to Birmingham. Do you know, funnily enough, in my travels, I don't tend to go to Birmingham very often. Um, I, so I usually I'm in Leeds and Manchester and Glasgow and these different places. Birmingham's nice. Yeah, yeah I like, go and check it. Yeah, I, re- I really like it. I, 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 I grew up in Leicester, so I knew Birmingham as a, as a, as a boy, but um, I think it's a really nice city. And, and I think it's really... Um, 
you know that sort of joke, I don't know who says it, but uh, when the Germans bombed Birmingham a lot and then the town planners ruined it more, you know, by sticking motorways through the middle of it. And there was that naive optimism of the yeah, 60s yeah, yeah. when everything was spaghetti junction. And I think some of that's being pulled back a little bit. Yeah. And the city is, is feeling very human. And, and there's some really nice places there. I think it's becoming more beautiful. And I love Brummies, real warmth, really, really good people. So it's a pleasure to be there. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, I've just got a quick question as well. Um, I saw Rosie Posey uh, down in Brighton, who uh, used to work at Meat, Meat Liquor and does a lot of consultancy now. So she yeah. last night was saying, why can't we have a Dishuman Brighton? So Right, I think I saw a tweet, yeah. <laughs> so, one day. Yeah, uh, one day we'll get to Brighton. But... Well, I think that the Hippodrome's still looking a bit empty, so that's a nice big space for <laughs> you. You could go in there, that'd be nice. Yeah, I don't know. I know Brighton a bit. It's beautiful, but I don't know. I know Brighton. I love Graham Greene, so I know Brighton Rock. Yeah, it's a good yeah. yeah. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if the volume would be there all the time. I think that would be the, the problem, you know, which is a, a real shame. But maybe a mini edition or something like that. Maybe. I could just. I mean, I, I, it's the wrong story. Cause it doesn't celebrate Brighton that much. But we write a story for every restaurant, as you know. And I'm already thinking about Brighton Rock, and it would be great to have sort of a, a gangster and. <laughs> anyway. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by BDO, the trusted accountancy and advisory firm. As the finance experts in hospitality, BDO have the experience and the insight to provide solid foundations for your business's future growth. BDO really are the go-to team to help your hospitality business succeed. If you're in need of a dedicated transactional team bolstered with corporate finance, audit and tax services, talk to BDO, who've got the right expertise, knowledge and experience to drive your restaurant or bar's business throughout their full life cycle. As thought leaders across the sector, BDO offers commercial and technical updates specifically tailored to restaurants and bars, including their annual hospitality reports. BDO also have a well-established network in the industry that spans across finance directors, suppliers and advisors, and they are always willing to use this to their clients and their contacts' advantage. Get in touch today at bdo.co.uk to chat about how they can help take your hospitality business to the top. And please say that I sent you. Well, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about time as well. I need to let you go because I know you're really busy. Um, and we've not got through half the question. No, no, sorry about that. I'm going to tangent. No, it's been great because we've just recovered so much. But, well, I tell you what, what I think we'll do is we'll just skip on to what's next for you. What's on the horizon? What's cooking? Um, I mean, a couple of things. We're launching Covent Garden in November. Yeah. Uh, pro- probably. We don't know that for sure yet. But uh, we're... we're we, and, and that's a, a, a sort of crazy thing to do. We're, it's a pre-pandemic decision where we decided to expand the restaurant, refurb it, close it down. You know, it's a perfectly good restaurant. We didn't need to do that. Um, and we've closed it down now, I guess, almost a year. Yeah, I want to say. I think we opened, closed it in, in, in December. But um, So it's going to be a large restaurant, central London, dependent on theatre and football and all of that. So, uh, but we're very excited to do it. It'll be brilliant. And it's the first restaurant that we... You know, I felt for a while that we needed to move on from that and, and redo it. And we've we've got a story there, um, which which we're just uh, we're just dusting off and, and finalising. And, and as, as as I think you know, every time we design a restaurant, we create a narrative, a story, which moves us in some way and is beautiful and allows us then to create the design from that story. The story will inform us on the period, the design, the sort of people who are in the restaurant, 
And, and so you might get a story which creates restaurants as different as Carnaby, which is set in the 60s and the 70s, or as Manchester, which is set in a Masonic Hall in 1910. Um, so very, very different aesthetics. It's, it's beautiful because it really helps us also to, I think, push the aesthetic into a place where it's not just predictable, it's unexpected. You can do sort of crazy things with the story. Um, so in Carnaby, we have, uh, you know, books around which are Norman Mailer and Jack Kerouac and Alan Ginsberg, because the, the owner of that cafe had taste in the beat poets and was very active during that time. The story in, in Covent Garden, New Covent Garden, is about a, a woman whose father owned an Irani cafe. She was rebellious. She was 17. She ended up sitting next to a very handsome lieutenant. He's called Lieutenant Callum Gordon, Callum Hurston Gordon. He's in the Highland Guards or something. Yeah, good. And, Scottish. Yeah, I like him. Yeah, exactly. Well, they have a steamy affair in, in 1920-something. And, they're, they're, and, and she gets sort of, you know, up the duff. And he buggers off because his regiment moves. And, and she has a baby sometime later. And, and eventually we find her, mother and daughter, uh, at the bar in their beautiful cafe. And, and the daughter is a, is a singer and they've made this space their own. And, uh, and, and so we, we think about that story. It's very glamorous, very cool, has some sex in it. And, and so it's a really interesting story. And I think it really fits the space and what we've done there. I'm feeling a big allegiance now to Covent Garden um, being, you know, just get a wee couple of Scottish flags up there and I'll be fine, I'll be there. Um, the a couple of other things I was going to say was, just on the Masonic Hall, just a little fact for you, the town that I was born in and I'm from is the first Masonic Hall. Oh, where's that? So it's in a town called Kilwinning in Ayrshire. Right. And it's the, they're all numbered, the Masonic Halls, and it's number nothing, number zero. It's known as the Mother Lodge. And the yeah. Masons were fascinating because they're, they're really old and very idealistic movement. And later on now we think about funny hand signals and stitching up the police cases and stuff. But early on there was an enormous idealism. It was very humanist. You know, it was like inclusive and all religions and, and trying to do good. I mean, really noble, noble traditions. Yeah, I mean, my father was one, or is one, yeah. and my grandfather and all that. You know, I think my grand's still got money put away for me to be. To really, be that's so uh, you're Mason, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that fussed, but yeah. No, I, 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 I don't know much. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not involved. <laughs> I, I like the idea of the cheap booze, though. The, the, you know, that's slightly, slightly reduced. I'm throwing up my trousers yeah. right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Showing my nipple. Um, so, um, so yes, yeah, so is that the other thing I was going to say was um, somebody feed Phil. Yes, that was lovely. Yeah, uh, he's a lovely man. Yeah, it was really cool. That guy is great. Yeah. Yeah. Have you watched the series and stuff? Are you. Uh, I've seen some of it. Yeah, I've seen some. Of it. I obviously saw the one that we we were yeah. featured in, um, and it's it's just a, it's just lovely to have have someone like that come along and and taste our food, and they were all they all loved it so much. Yeah, they did. Um, it was just, just a delight that they all loved it so much. Yeah, they were brilliant, and, and I wrote to him on Instagram uh, after it, and he came back. It was really nice, and he was just saying thanks a lot, I had a great time, and you know, so it was brilliant. But the one to watch if if you've ever got any time was there's a Portuguese one, and he go. I think it might be Lisbon. He must go to, but it's a very good episode, and he goes to time out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's cool, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and and then the other he's he's eating out in a little sort of jetty. And you're always worried that his chair's going to like fall into the seat. Really out, but um, it's a great episode, you know. And he's he just he just seems like a, a really lovely man. There's a lovely Anthony Bourdain about Lisbon as well, where I've, I've been in a couple of the restaurants he's recommended. But you know, rest in peace, lovely man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, I'll ask you some future, uh, well, some some fun questions now. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So I might give you a handicap because everyone says London. So best city to eat in that's not London. <laughs> I don't know. So I, this is such a pre-lockdown question. I have no flipping idea. But I mean, <laughs> London is an easy answer. 
Um, I love eating in, I'll, I'll give you two answers. I, I love eating in both New York, because uh, I've, I've gone there more frequently, I, they're really fantastic. Well, but also Lisbon, I've been to relatively recently, about a year ago, which I loved. Um, you know, fantastic eateries there. Uh, so yeah, but both of those brilliant cities, the time out market, not least, amazing place. Yeah. And what about your best restaurant then, that's obviously not yours? Yeah, obviously not. I, I See, again, this feels like, I don't really remember, but I really, one of my favorite evenings in the world ever is, is to wander up the road. So I, we're in Shoreditch, we're on Shoreditch High Street. Wander up the road, up Hackney Road, and there's a beautiful wine bar called Sager and Wild. Uh-huh. And, and go in there and just ask, ask the wine waiters, the barman, what you should drink. They'll recommend you a, a delightful, you know, Shiraz or something from New Zealand or Australia. And, and you'll be blown away. And then they'll bring you a cheese toasty or bits of cheese. It's brilliant. And then go from there to a restaurant called Braun, which is past Columbia Road Flower Market in this end of town as well. And eat your feast there. Again, just ask them what you should order. They'll bring you delicious organic wines. So I think um, I might have answered best bar or pub as well, which, which might be a question later. But, but, um, but, but, but for me, Braun is one of my all-time treats. It's such a fantastic little local restaurant in an unexpected location in Hackney Shoreditch. Um, and then before you go to Braun, go to Sagram Wild. Brilliant evening. Great. And what about best dish? What's your go-to craveable dish? I don't know. So I think I'm going to say, um, I mean, the cheese toasty at Sagram Wild is pretty good. But uh, I, I, I love the dishes we have in Bombay. So I think there's nothing like going to a place called Barimiya, which is round the back of the Taj Hotel. It's a street joint. And it's just a little kiosk on, and then you eat on the pavement sort of thing. They've taken over an art gallery now, um, but it's, it's just an open place. And cars drive up and people eat on their bonnets um, and everyone sort of turns up. It's busy and it's, it's inexpensive, so everyone turns up. And I have to say the boti kebab there or the chic kebab there, even, the, even the, the, the brain is delicious there. They do a brain dish, which is amazing. Um, so so I, I'd pick the, 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 those dishes, but if you had to pick one, maybe the... Maybe the boti kebab there is fantastic, which is the lamb kebabs. Great. And then as we've done best bar and pub, we'll finish on best drink. What's your go-to poison oh. or non-poison? Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a good question. I love, again, this is so pre-lockdown. I didn't remember. I, mean, I could have reeled off a good list of, I've definitely had too many martinis and dukes. Is it dukes that <laughs> bar where Ian Fleming invented the Vesper or whatever? So I think I've, I had the three in my quota and then started chucking olives around. But, um, uh, no, I, I, I love the buttery old fashioned that, that Will and Co do at Hawksmoor. Yeah. And the Shaky Pete, the other one, is brilliant. Their, their cocktails are brilliant. So shout out to them. But I think the buttery old fashioned is a proper treat. And there is nothing like going to Hawksmoor, having an old fashioned, or, or having your steak, having a sticky toffee pudding, and having an old fashioned at the end. And, you know, like I've, I haven't done that for months and my waistline doesn't cope with it very well, but it's been <laughs> brilliant. So I recommend that as well. Brilliant. Well, listen, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time today. It's been a real joy to talk to you and, and see you. And um, I just wish you all well for the future. And hopefully I'll see you in one of your venues or outside of one very soon. Brilliant. Take care, sir. It's really good to speak. Take care. Cheers. Thanks to Shamil for being on today and I wish him and the Deshume team well for the rest of 2020 and beyond. Thanks to you for listening and subscribing, sharing, rating and reviewing. It's really brilliant to hear from you day in, day out, so please keep them coming in. Thanks to Engage Interactive for being our headline sponsor and if you do need anything digital, Get in touch with Alex and the team at Engage Interactive and they'll be sure to help.
Thanks to BDO for being our premium partner. Again, if you need any financial advice, financial strategy help, or anything to do with mergers and acquisitions, or indeed exploring your options, get in touch with Peter Hemmington at BDO and he will help out too. Thanks to Gaz and Gabby for putting the podcast together as ever. This is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you. Thanks for listening. And I hope that this episode gave you some real value to help your brand boom. Boom.